0: All right, welcome. It is extra time Immaculate Grid for
1: generations talking about my sports generations. It is Grid Baseball number 117. It is Friday the 28th of July. So before we jump into the grid, there's a few things from yesterday's show just wanted to kind of add some clarity fi- some, you know, not necessarily mistakes, but things that we forgot, looked up a couple of things and set the record straight on a handful of other things. So, number one, Bob Gibson. We talked quite a bit about Bob Gibson yesterday. If I had to guess, again, I mentioned on yesterday's show that, you know, six foot two, six three, maybe. So, officially, in his baseball reference, he's listed at six foot one. And my response to that is not, friend. Also, one of the other things that I was remiss in mentioning yesterday and just how great of an athlete that he was. So he actually played baseball and basketball at Creighton. So he went to school in Omaha. So you can find a whole bunch of my kinfolk in the Omaha. We've talked about Nebraska before. By University of Nebraska and Darren Erstad. But Gibson went to Creighton, played basketball and baseball. His first professional season was not with the Cardinals; it was actually with the Harlem Globe Globetrotters. So he's listed at six foot one in his baseball reference. I don't think that guy was six foot one. I think he was six two at least. Also, I mentioned yesterday that you know, when I met him and the amount of grip at that guy's hand was, and he was 25 plus years older than me. Yeah, he was 25 plus years older at the time. He was, he was 37 years older. I mean, he's 37 years older than I am. So the guy, again, just an amazing player and just a gentleman. And it was a great honor to meet him and he passed away in
0: 2020. So rest in power, Bob Gibson. So another gentleman that we mentioned was
1: Stan Musial. So I did get a chance to meet Stan Musial that same day. Stan Musial was born in 1920, and so the year that I met him, this would have been opening day, home opening for the Cardinals in 2007. They won the World Series in 2006. Musial would have been 87 years old when I met him, and his baseball reference says he was six feet tall, which it was hard to tell. I mean, the guy was 87 years old, so he kind of hunched over. Definitely the years had had wizened him, but, you know, even then that guy still had a grip. And he passed away in 2013. So rest in peace, stand useful. So one of the things that I said in yesterday's show that I thought he led the league or career wise led in total bases and partially correct. So he was the career leader in total bases, but however he was passed three times, or excuse me, twice. And there are only four total players with six thousand or more total bases. So number one is Hank Aaron, six thousand eight hundred fifty-six. So he would go on to pass Musial. Of course, he's younger than Musial. Number two on the list is Albert Pujols was 6,211. So, of course, he would pass Musual months later. But for a couple of decades, Musual would be the leader in career total bases with 6,134. Also, one of the other things I mentioned yesterday that I thought Musial's career, highest career or season total rather, of home runs was 47. And I was a little off. I knew it was For some reason, in my head yesterday, I was thinking it was less than 50. No, he never hit 40 home runs in a single season. The guy was a doubles machine, as evidenced by 6,134 career total bases in third all time. And then the only other gentleman with more than 6,000 total bases is Willie Mays at 6,080. So I wanted to clear those those discrepancies up from yesterday. Another note that we mentioned yesterday was the 1989 Braves, and we postulated that we believed that the Braves finished last in the NL West, and we were correct. They did finish sixth, which was last in the NL West. They finished with a record of 63 and 97. They were 28 games back of the first place San Francisco Giants at 92 and 70. And in fact, the Braves would have the worst league in all of the National League because The Phillies would finish 67 and 95 in the East, 26 games back of the NL East leading Chicago Cubs at 93 and 69. So, wanted to clear that up or just give you a little more context there. Also, in 1982 Cardinals, when we were trying to think of the players that were on that team, we made a few mental or memory mistakes. So number one, Vince Coleman was not a Cardinal yet. He would be a rookie, rookie in 1985. So Cardin, he was not a Cardinal. Lonnie Smith very much was the starting, was one of the starting outfielders for the 82 Cardinals. Secondly, boy, Ted Simmons. I don't know, we were off by a decade as far as who the starting catcher was for the Cardinals. So it was actually Daryl Porter. And, of course, reading these names after the fact was like, oh, yeah, all right, now I remember. But, you know, trying to reach back that far, we're talking 40 years now, trying to remember who we were trying to think of. And then we also, I think, maybe might have mentioned Terry Pendleton, very much a Cardinal, but he was not on that 82 team. And, in fact, it's just one of those funny names that you totally forget and totally random out of nowhere. But the starting third baseman for the Cardinals on the 1982 World Series winning team was Ken Orbrickfell. And it's funny. I mean, I totally, as soon as I read it, I'm like, yeah, he was totally there. Of course he was. But I I remember him as a brave. He would go on and be a brave and, you know, solid defensively, not a whole lot of pop for a third baseman. I don't think he ever hit more than, I don't think he ever hit 20 home runs in a single season. But he was very much the starting third baseman for the 1982 Cardinals. Also, we mentioned the NLCS game where the Giants lost, where Tony Peña hit a fly ball in the right field that Candy Maldonado misplayed and it got scored as a triple. So we looked that game up. Yes, the Giants did lose 1-0 that game. That was the potentially, you know, World Series clinching game for the Giants, which they lost 1-0. Dave Drovecki did, in fact, take the loss. Uh, John Tudor actually would get the win. So totally forgot about John Tudor. 1985 John Tudor would have an ERA of like 2.16 or something crazy. John Tudor was a very stellar pitcher for those Cardinals in the mid 80s. Ken Daly would earn the save. So just kind of some of those notes from that game six. So the Giants would lose one one zero and then would lose game seven six nothing. Just get blown out. Atley Hammerker, we we talked about Atley Hammerker, the only guy to give up a grand slam to Fred Lynn in an all-star game. But he would give up four runs in the first or second inning, looked it up and take the loss. Giants would lose six zero. Cardinals would go on to the World Series, and it would be the first World Series where the home team won every game, and the Twins would beat the Cardinals 4-3. to With Dan Gladden in left field and center field, and he had just come from the Giants. So, that'll just wanted to clear some things up from yesterday, also add a little color for some of those items, and uh, make sure that we're all clean
0: here. So today's grid. Oh my gosh, today was tough. If I was getting. Scored
1: by time, I would have not made it. And we'll get to one of my picks, which I'll take the L on it, but it was very much a guess. I wasn't even sure. I just threw it out there and then I looked it up and and I was you know, correct, but I wasn't correct because I knew. And then an interesting fact where there was another player that I actually chose that would have satisfied the one that I totally guessed at, but then I would have had to think harder on the other one. So six one way half a dozen another. But let's jump into the grid. We got a lot of just interesting notes and just some thoughts and some stats and some comparisons today. I think they're kind of interesting and because today's grid was so hard, I think it was made it even more fun to look up some of this stuff. So as we go from left to right at the top on the columns, in the first column we have the Pittsburgh Pirates. In the middle column we have the Cincinnati Reds. And in the far right column we have single season achievement and 200 plus Ks in a season for pitchers. Then in the rows, we have in the top row, we have the Detroit Tigers. In the middle row, we have the Texas Rangers. And the bottom, we have the Colorado Rockies. And we just had these weird, in my opinion, weird combinations. Just Pittsburgh, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Texas. Those were the two that I really struggled with. We'll talk about those in a moment. Um, the Cincinnati ones weren't too bad. The 200 plus K was tough for the Rockies, and we're going to talk about that
0: here in just just a couple ticks here. But for the top right hand corner, so that's Detroit Tigers, Jack Morris. I chose for the
1: Tigers in 200 plus K pitching in a season. So Jack Morris is a very Interesting guy, so he recently made the World Series or excuse me. He recently made the Hall of Fame, won a World Series with Detroit in 84, was on one of the Toronto
0: teams to win the World Series as well. Jack Morris, a very interesting guy. He was a very, very, very good pitcher. But statistically,
1: probably not the best pitcher in any particular year. And he has one kind of outstanding stat that. Sets him apart from most, but the stat is possibly deceiving and people have written about this and talked about it. And this has been poured over, over and over and over again, and ultimately is probably the single stat that really got him into the hall. And I'm not suggesting that he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. In fact, I very much think he should. But it is an example of if he's in the Hall of Fame, who are some of those players that aren't that maybe should? So the stat that I think most people think of Jack Morris or the one for sure that was the key piece that got him into the Hall of Fame
0: is he is the Picture with the most wins during the 1980s. And that was with 162. And that's quite a bit when you look at number two had 140. So, you know, over a 10-year period, you know, you're talking two, two wins difference on average. So, it's quite significant. But if you... Delve into
1: it, and there's there's several articles. I looked this up. There's several articles that kind of talk about this. So number two in wins in the 80s was Dave Steeb,
0: longtime Toronto Blue Jay, with 140. But Dave Steeb led all
1: pitchers in the 80s with in war with 45.2. He was
0: number one. And Jack Morris was number 12 with 27.9. The guy that was third in wins for the 80s is actually Bob
1: Welch, longtime Dodger and then went to the A's. And Welch would be a top five in the war for the for the decade. Welch is not in Hall of Fame. Steve definitely is not in the Hall of Fame. Jack Morris is in the Hall of Fame. So this isn't an argument to say Jack Morris shouldn't be in there. I'm more liberal in these types of things. I think, hey, Morris is in there. Great. You know, if you look at his career over a long period of time, solid. His ERA, career ERA, wasn't that great. You know, he has a decent amount of strikeouts. But, you know, there's other guys that had as much excellence or more excellence. And it just so happened that. You know, the Tigers were a machine
0: in those 80s. I mean, they quite possibly on aggregate, aside from,
1: shoot, in the AL, I don't even know. They very well may have been the best team of the 80s if you want to look at it. We'll go back and look that up as far as wins because the Yankees weren't that great. The Yankees were actually, quite frankly, probably terrible. Because they didn't go to the World Series.
0: You know, they went to the World Series in what, 1983? And lost that World Series? So some more numbers on, on Jack Morris. So his
1: best season outside of the 1981 strike season. So in the 1981 strike season, he was Cy Young 3 and he was MVP 15. But his best season is probably his 1983 season where he, you know, was full full regular 162-game season. Cy Young, number three, MVP, number 21. He would have a 4.0 war. He would lead the league in innings pitch with 293.2. He would lead the league in strikeouts with 232,
0: and he'd have a solid ERA at 3.34. So that was Jack Morris's, possibly his best season ever, was 1983. That year, Lamar Hoyt would win the Cy Young. He would lead the league in wins with 24.
1: He would have an ERA of 3.66, and his war
0: would be 3.7. So below even Jack Morris's. Here's where it gets interesting. Hoyt wins Cy Young. Morris finishes third. Finishing second was Dan Quisenberry. So he was a longtime reliever for the Kansas City
1: Royals. He would lead the league with 45 saves. And he would lead the league in war at 5.5. And you're saying, he's a reliever. How, how the heck could he lead the league in war? Well, this is, and we talked about this the other day, As a reliever, he
0: pitched 139 innings. So he's pitching two-thirds as many innings or more than what starting pitchers are doing today. So starting pitcher, if they're hitting 200 innings, that's pretty amazing.
1: And he did 139 as a reliever, 45 saves. Leads the
0: league in war with 5.5. Finishes second in Cy Young in 1983. So Cy Young, four, five, and six. So again, Morris has finished
1: third. So Hoyt first, Quisenberry second, Morris is third. So here's four, five, and six. Richard Dotson with the White Sox have a war of 5.1, 22 wins. Ron Guidry, longtime Yankee. 5.3 5.3 war, 21 wins, would also lead the league with 21 complete games. And then Scott
0: McGregor with Baltimore would have 5.3 war and 18 wins. So Morris would finish with the fourth best war, finish third, and side down. So just one of those interesting statistical. You know, I don't even want to call this an anomaly. Maybe we'll call it an oddity. Maybe we'll call
1: it the lack of knowledge of advanced statistics. But back then, you know, you lead the league in wins, which Hoyt did with 24. Often that led to, you know, if not Cy Young, very high finishing in Cy Young. And a 3.66 ERA in 1983,
0: you know, it's solid. But even in the American League, not league leading. So I went Jack Morris for the top right-hand square. He comes in at
1: 8%. So the middle right-hand square for Texas and 200-plus Ks, I went with Cole Hamills, And I just did that the flex. I think the easy answer is Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan uh, has the single season strikeout record for the Rangers. I believe I looked it up. It was 304 or something like that. So I went Cole Hamels 5%. Just the flex. Now here's an interesting one. The bottom right hand corner. 200 plus K season for the Colorado Rockies.
0: And I got this one pretty quickly. but. I was thinking, are there any others?
1: I don't know of anybody else that struck out more than 200 batters for the Colorado Rockies. So I went with Waldo Jimenez, and he used to just dominate the Giants, just dominate. And you go back and look in his career, and maybe it's because he played in Colorado. His home games were in Colorado. But I mean, he would just. You know, it seems like he would always take a no-hitter against the Giants into the fourth, fifth, sixth inning, something like that. And he was very much by possibly one of the best pitchers during his very short, you know, his career just seemed very short. But he comes in at 68% for this square. But I had to go and figure, you know, I had to go look this, the rest of this stuff up just because, like, okay, give us a point of reference. So Ubaldo Jimenez, in 2010, struck out 214 batters. That same year, he finished third in Cy Young with 7.5 war, and he had a 2.88 ERA. Now was pretty impressive, 2.88 ERA pitching in the cozy confines
0: of Coors Field. But that year was also the year of Roy Halladay,
1: and he had an 8.5 war. And 21 wins, which would lead the league in both. Halliday would have a 2.44 ERA. And then he would lead the league in innings pitch with 250.2. He would lead the league in batter's face with 993. Now keep that in mind, 993. This is going to come up again. 993 batter's face. Roy Halliday led the league in innings pitched. Just keep that number lodged in your brain. He would lead the league with nine complete games. He would lead the league with four shutouts.
0: Number two in Cy Young voting was Adam Wainwright. He would have a war of 6.2. He would have 20
1: wins, and he would have 242 ERA. So again, another example of where, not saying war is the only metric, but where Based on war, the order of Cy Young was not in order of the war rankings. And you got to remember, Jimenez was pitching in Cordsfield. I mean, come on. So then you say, all right, well, who are the other guys that pitched for the Rockies and struck out more than 200 batters? And it's like, I don't
0: know. So I had, I had to look this up. 1999 Pedro Astuccio struck out 210. That that's just one of those, okay. Who knew? Saisho <laughs> <laughs> would also be a Dodger.
1: But the career or single season leader, all-time leader for
0: the Colorado Rockies for strikeouts. The number is 230. And the guy did it in 2018. Still pitches for the Rockies. He's actually on
1: the IL right now. But I mean, when I looked him up, I'm like, who who is this guy? I barely even know who this guy is. And this goes to show, this is not a dig on the player in question. This is a dig on me. This goes to show you my lack of really
0: other team knowledge. Outside of the Giants since 2016. So Edamon
1: Marquez Has the single season record in strikeouts for the Rockies with 230. Who knew? I don't know. It wasn't me. So, bottom right hand corner, I went Ubaldo Jimenez with 68%. So, let's knock out a couple of quick ones here because we've got a lot of notes for some of the others. So, for Pirates and Rockies, you know, for me, that was fairly easy. We've used them for some other. For Arizona Diamondbacks in Pittsburgh, I think we use them for Arizona Diamondbacks and Colorado Rockies, but Tony Womack, second baseman, originally a Pirate, stole a lot of bases. He comes in at 2%. And then for Cincinnati and Colorado Rockies, we went with Denny Nagel. Comes in at 3%. My friend Tony, as an FYI, used them as a Pirate and a Rocky. Absolutely qualified.
0: All right, let's get into some more interesting stats and numbers. So in the top left-hand corner, man, this one almost broke my brain, and I finally got it.
1: And the way that I go about these things, we've told told you before, I try to think of giants. Okay, can I think of any giants that played for the two teams? Can I think of a guy that maybe you know terrorized the Giants somehow? So the, the top left-hand corner is Pirates. And Detroit, and then I, after I can't, if I can't figure it out that way, I start going by positions. I start I think, all right, who are all the first basemen I can think of that you know played for the Pirates? Not necessarily for both teams, but just you know who played first base for the Pirates. All right, uh, Sid Bream. Nope, Sid Bream. You know he would go and play with Atlanta. I don't really remember
0: Detroit. Okay, it's not Sid Bream as one example. <laughs> I don't have a cough button, so apologies. So then I'll go like, all right, uh, second base, Raphael
1: Belliard, uh, Freddie Sanchez, you know, both guys pillaged for Pirates. Sanchez would be a giant. You know, none of those come to mind as Detroit. And I go by position by position and I go by different errors and events like Bobby Bonilla, Barry Bonds, Willie Stargell, Dave Parker. You know, I try to figure out, can I figure, can I think of somebody that was on any of those
0: teams that would become a Tiger? J-Bell. And then I'll go, and then I'll go the
1: opposite direction. I'm Like, all right, all right Detroit, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, you know, Daryl
0: Evans. And try to figure it out that way. No dice. And then I finally go, ah, we just used them the other day. Bill Madlock,
1: we used them for pirate, and I think it was three, three thousand or three hundred average with over three thousand at bats, something
0: like that. But Bill Madlock absolutely was a was a tiger the very last year of his career. And So I got that right. Bill Madlock comes in at 3%. But
1: when I went back to go look at Bill Madlock, the other thing that I didn't realize is his first appearance, right, he was a Cub. He would finish in top three in Rookie of the Year. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But
0: he was a Cub. Played there a couple of seasons. Won a couple batting titles with them. We're going to talk about that here in
1: just a moment. But then he was a giant and then the Giants would send him off to the Pirates in that 79 season and he would win a World Series with the Pirates and spend a few years with the Pirates. And he very much would his last year was with the Tigers. But his first appearance, his first year didn't qualify for rookie of the year or didn't exceed rookie limits is probably a better way of saying it. But in 1973, at his age 22, he was a Ranger. So Bill Madlock actually would have qualified for the left hand middle square, which we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But Bill Madlock was a Ranger. I totally did not remember that, 1973. But in his 74 season, Madlock would finish third, about over 300, would finish third in rookie of the year voting. But he finished behind Bake McBride and Greg Gross. And both of those guys' careers would be over before I really started following baseball. Both of those guys would be out of the league by 1983. I mean, they played a decade. They were, all, they were both solid players. They both had averages very close to 300. But I never saw them play. I've heard of Bake Big, Big Bride. I have a random ghost gross baseball card, but other than that, no real connection to either of those guys. But Madlock would be a Ranger, and then the following year he'd be a Cub, finished third in Rookie of the Year voting. Then in 1975 and 76 with the Cubs, he'd lead the league in batting. He'd bat 354 and 339, respectively. Then in 1981, as a pirate, he'd bat
0: 341. And then he'd bat 323 in 1983. In 15 seasons, Madlock would strike out 510 times. Soak that in for a minute. So he's striking out 30, you know, three,
1: 36 times on average a year. Here's the interesting thing two times in his career, he struck out 50 times or more. That was 1985 and 1987. 1987 was his final year in the league. 1985, of course, two years before he would retire. 20% of all his Ks in 15
0: seasons came in two seasons. So for 13 seasons, he struck out barely 400 times. Bring that in today's game. Guys are striking out 400 times in a season and a half, two seasons. It took him 13 seasons to strike out 400 times. Bill Madlock, ladies and gentlemen. So the top. Middle square. Detroit
1: and Cincinnati was 16%. I went with the mayor, Sean Casey. We used Sean Casey for I think that was the 300 Average 3,000 plate appearances, Cincinnati Reds, where I boycotted Pete Rose. And then let's go to the middle square this time, because we're going to spend some time on that left-hand middle square. But middle square, Reds and Rangers, fairly easy, MVP, uh, Josh Hamilton. You know, that guy's career was just really short. He didn't really, he didn't appear in the majors until 26. Um, The interesting thing about him, after that MVP, you know, season in 2010 and MVP caliber after that, went to a couple of World Series, you know, loss against the Giants, loss against the Cardinals. Josh Hamilton would sign a massive contract with the Angels as a free agent. Would play two seasons
0: there and then get shipped back to the Rangers and the angels would pick up over 20 some million dollars
1: of Hamilton's contract with his final year with the Rangers. And then there would be two more years after that where he was not even in the league. And the angels were still paying him 25, almost 25 million dollars a year for two more additional seasons, even though that he was technically his rights were owned by the Rangers. But I went
0: Josh Hamilton 34% in the middle square. So left hand square
1: left hand middle square pirates. And Rangers. Full disclosure, I was just again going through every single position and I can't come up with anybody. And finally, I'm just wondering, well. I don't really know or remember where Doc Ellis went after the Pirates. So I just went, I wonder if Doc Ellis played for the Rangers, looked it up. He did. There you go, Doc Ellis 2%. Not going to take credit for that because I didn't really know. It's just
0: eh,
1: maybe you did. Doc Ellis famously has stated that he
0: pitched a complete game shutout on LSD and the guy's quite a character and you know how much
1: of his you know stories are are real and how much of them are exaggerated you know I can't say I don't know but he's he's very much a character in 1971 he would finish Cy Young number four and he would have an A war of 1.7. He'd finish 19 and 9. He would have a 3.06 ERA and he would pitch 226
0: innings and he would have 11 complete games. I'm just giving you guys that for reference. Because there's some more
1: that I really want to talk about here in just a sec. And it goes back to 993 batters faced by 2010
0: Roy Halladay. The Cy Young leader. So 1971. Ellis finishes Cy Young 4. Bob Gibson finishes behind him. In Cy Young voting, Cy Young 5. Now, at this point, Bob Gibson
1: is now starting to be on the downside of his career. But in 1971, Bob Gibson had a 5-0 war. Doc Ellis' was 1.7. But here's the differences. Here's how war tries to account for, you know, account maybe not to be the right word, but wins aren't everything wins are a team statistic right because a lot of things can happen if you're on a good team and even if you don't pitch as well you can still pick up wins and you know it kind of masks a lot of different things also if you're on a team that isn't very good or if they just need you so much and you you pitch so much you're going to pick up a lot of losses so when you're on a good team You know, again, it kind of masks some of those um, failures, if there are any. So Gibson finishes 16 and 13. He'd have a 3.04 ERA, but he was a league leader with five shutouts, and he'd be third in complete games with 20. Ellis had 11.
0: Ellis finished 19 and 9. Ellis had a war of 1.7. Gibson was 5.0. So 1971, the NL Cy Young winner was Ferguson
1: Jenkins with the Cubs. And he and Tom Seaver would be 1-2 in Cy voting and 1-2 in war, but the opposite. So Jenkins would win the Cy Young. He'd have a 10.1 war. Seaver would come in second, but he would lead the league in war with 10.2. So negligible.
0: But I told you to remember those batters faced. 993, Roy Halliday. Ferguson Jenkins in
1: 1971, 39 games started, 30 complete games, 24 wins, led the league. Led the league in innings pitched with 325. Led the league in batters faced with
0: 1,299. You heard that. Almost basically 1300. Almost 400 more batters paid faced, excuse me. And if I could do math, there's actually 306, but I said 400.
1: He would have an ERA of 2.77. He would strike out 263 batters. Tom Seaver would pitch 286.1 innings, lead the league in strikeouts with 289, and he was the league leader in year A with 1.76. But even Seaver pitched 286.1 innings. Ferguson Jenkins, 325, 30 complete
0: games. Roy Halladay in 2010 led the league with nine complete games. 993 batters face Ferguson Jenkins 1299. So now let's take this into. Comparison to 2022. So the AL. Leader
1: in innings pitch. Was Framber Valdez with Houston. He'd have 201.1 innings pitched, and he would face 827 batters. So almost 170
0: fewer, 166 fewer than even Halliday did in 2010. The NL leader was Sandy Alcantara
1: with Miami. 228.2 innings pitched,
0: faced 886 batters. 886 batters versus 993, so 107 fewer, versus
1: 1,299 in 1971 by Ferguson
0: Jenkins. So you can see the difference of pitching in the 70s to now. And if we
1: go back into the 60s and before, if you look at Cy, Cy Young, But if you look at Warren Spahn and some of his innings pitched. I think famously Juan Marichal has a 10 inning. one 0 shutout, something like that. So you look at the innings pitched by these guys and it's significantly gone down. And one would think or surmise. That. The conditioning and all those things are so much better. Maybe we should have guys, you know, not getting hurt as much and pitching more. Now, granted, the mound has changed. The mound got lowered after Gibson had the 1.16, whatever it was, ERA, what was that, 1967, something like that, 68. So they raised the mound, or excuse me, lowered the mound. But I mean, this is 1971. The mound's already been lowered. And a lot of people have talked about this. I mean, this is not a new subject. This is not a new angle. But it's just interesting, just the disparity more so, I think, in the batters faced. Because it's not really innings pitch, right? Innings pitch, you can face three batters or you can face 10 batters, 15 batters you know they weren't really tracking pitches so I'm not I don't you don't really have number of pitches to go along with those batters face but you're at least can get a a reasonable idea but the number of guys that they were facing so many more but doc ellis finishes off that square two percent you know I didn't really come up with it but I want to be able to finish off the grid show the grid show where we're at have something to talk about and kind of compare but um again follow the show we're doing the extra time immaculate grid every single day we want to find more of these kinds of players that kind of talk a little bit more about i want to talk about cole hamels you know if we use him later on denny nagel's an interesting guy he was lights out when he was on atlanta so I want to talk about him a little bit more in future shows. We want to give the mayor, Sean Casey, his due. I think he's an interesting case study as well. Sean Casey, you know, he strikes me as like a.
0: Maybe a better version of John Cruck. You know, I'm not sure, but we want to
1: use him as a case study. No pun intended there. And today is Friday, so tomorrow is the big show, the main show of generations talking about my sports generation. So Steve will be with me tomorrow. And we've got a great topic. We'll bring that up in tomorrow's Extra Time Immaculate Grid Show. Interact with the show. Share us your grids. We'll give you a shout out if you've got any anecdotes. About any of the players, any interesting facts, we'd love to hear them. Shoot those over to us. Participate in our polls. I'm having a great time doing this. I want to keep doing it, and as long as folks are listening and you guys are making it interesting, I'll keep keep doing this. And uh, it's fun to kind of look at my grid and reconnect with my friend Tony and you know about baseball and all those that kind of stuff. So that's super fun. But I'm Jonathan, this is Extra Time Immaculate Grid. This is grid 117 for Friday, the 28th. Of July.
0: And you guys have a great one. Check out the main show tomorrow. See ya.